I am Sarah's brother. Uh, <laughs> it's good to be here. Thank you so much to Covenant and, and Pastor Randy for the kind invitation for me to join you tonight, and also for Sovereign Grace. I've heard a lot about you uh, through Scott Clark, who's a dear friend. So I bring greetings from the seminary, not only our president, Bob Godfrey, but also our faculty, along with Scott Clark in particular, who wanted me to pass on his greetings to you as well. What, what, what a wonderful occasion this is for me to join you in, in, in delving into God's word. We pray that as we spend some time together that this will be mutually edifying uh, time together. I, um, as the handout is being passed out, there's two pages per session, which means that um, each day or each session you're going to have to look at the front and the back of the lesson, but hopefully that will give you a chance to follow along. I'm told that the timing I have is that we have to be done by 9, but in terms of division, I can break it up as I go, depending on how much time of break you need. So trusting that about 10 minutes is good, then we will look at the, uh, the break that way, and we will end promptly tonight at uh, 9 o'clock, and then hopefully carry on with three lessons tomorrow. We have a Q&A session at the end schedule, which means that there will be a time where you can talk back at me um, in terms of questions or rebuttals or complaints that you might have. And so that would be an occasion for us to spend some time thinking through as well. Uh, Pastor Randy has generously introduced my family. My, I am married uh, to Sharon, my wife, who is a hospital social worker. And so we're going to talk about foster adoption at some point here in terms of our discussion of Romans. And I also have two children, Anna and Simeon, 11 and 9. Their names were chosen before they were born. And so if we had two girls, they would have been named Anna and Simeon. And if we had two boys, they would have been Anna and Simeon. Slightly awkward. Uh, but <laughs> overall, we like the name from Luke chapter 2, particularly because we hope that one day they too will grow up and be, become a witness of Christ. We couldn't have a third because the only other character there is Jesus. And we thought that might be a little uncomfortable uh, <laughs> as well. Uh, we live in Escondido, which is a, a small town outside of city of San Diego, and uh, we do most of our life and ministry there. There is nothing that I bring here that's exceptional here. This is a time for us to learn together. And as we do so, I pray that the Lord, Lord will bless our time together, that it will be a time of mutual challenge as well as encouragement. Let's begin with a word of prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you so much for your grace to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. We exalt his name tonight, for we recognize the gathering of brothers and sisters here is impossible apart from your grace. We gather together not simply because of our geographical proximity or common interest or, for that matter, common background. We simply come together because you have formed us as family in Jesus Christ by his blood. So, Lord, we want to discuss his name. We want to praise his name tonight. We want to be able to understand him more. So, Lord, open our eyes tonight so that we may be able to see your word and understand it better. Open our ears, O Lord, that what we hear will not be the words of any human being, but truly it will be your words coming alive from your word. Pray that, Lord, you open our hearts, that our hearts may be softened to hear, not only to be stretched and challenged in our minds, but our hearts may burn more for you and for your church and for your people. We thank you for this time. We pray this in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 
Would you turn with me to Romans chapter 5? There's a twofold purpose to all this discussion that on the one hand, we are talking about the topic of sanctification, but there are different ways of approaching the same topic. We can approach it from a theological framework where we systematically discuss the topic at hand. The other way is to go inductive up. That is to say, we look at the crucial passages that speak to these issues and build a case for a larger theological topic. It's the latter that we're choosing to do, which means that in our discussions of Romans chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, we are going to be focusing on the issue of sanctification and what that means for our lives. But as we do so, our primary interest is to understand Romans more. And let me just be honest. I feel like I know Romans more than I know about the topic of sanctification. They go hand in hand, but my background is Bib studies, which means that I'm coming at it from the perspective of interpreting the scripture as it builds to a larger theological case. Oftentimes when we think, when we think of the book of Romans, people think of chapters 6, 7, and 8 as the topic where they discuss sanctification. We begin with five tonight in the first session because we recognize that we cannot discuss six, seven, and eight without what was discussed in the first five chapters. And while we don't have time to discuss all first five chapters, I'm going to cram in as much as I can into the first 15 minutes or so using chapter five as our platform and bounce-off point. So, Let's turn to chapter 5, whether in your book or your app. Let's read it responsively. That is, I'll read the odd verses, and you'll read the even verses together. I am using the English Standard Version, but whatever version you have is fine with all of us. So do read it, read it proudly and loudly, as we begin by saying, Here now is the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and in and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him, him from the wrath of God. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yeah, 
But the free gift is not like the trespass. If, if, for if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So far the reading of his word. I want to begin this way, talking about the importance of Romans in history. For on July 17th, AD 180, about half a dozen people from North African town of Sicily appeared before Saturninus, uh, the Roman emperor, the governor of the province, charged with belonging to a seditious organization called the Christian Church. A box was brought into the court as evidence contained the library of their small community. What have you in your box? asked the governor. Our books, they answered, and the letters of Paul, a righteous man. Some 200 years later, a North African professor of rhetoric sat weeping in the garden of his friend Olypius at Milan and heard a child singing in the neighborhood, simply saying, take up and read, take up and read. Taking up the scroll which lay at his friend's side, he read the words of Romans 13, 13 through 14, where it says, Not in riots and drunken parties, not in eroticism and indecencies, not in strife and rivalry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in its lusts. Those were the words that St. Augustine heard, and he came to the Lord and continued to serve the church. In November 1515, a professor of sacred theology in the University of Wittenberg began to expound Paul's epistles to the Romans to his students and continued this course until the following September. As he prepared his lectures, he came, became more and more to appreciate the centrality of the Pauline doctrine of justification by faith. As he said, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy... He justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in a greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. Can you guess at who that person might have been? 
Martin Luther, that we this year, 1517 was the date, that we often date the beginnings of the Reformation. This is the 500th anniversary of such a beginning and renewal and reformation. 1738, just to be all ecclesiastical, on May 27th, John Wesley went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans about a quarter before nine while he was describing the change which God works in the hearts through faith in Christ. I felt my heart, he said, strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, the Christ alone for my salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken my sins away, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. This is the history of the book of Romans, where not only does it sit as one of the favorite books of many who encounter the risen Lord in it, but it has had a powerful effect upon various men and women throughout history. And the question that we begin with tonight is, what about the book of Romans gives it such power, such influence upon the hearts and minds of men and women? This is a book written as Paul journeys to Jerusalem to deliver the prepared gift to many who are there as Christians suffering at this point, the gift prepared by the Gentiles in order to support the mother church. He wasn't sure exactly what was going to happen. Here in Acts chapter 20 is recorded, he meets with the elders of Ephesus on an island called Miletus, and there he grieves with them, not only speaking about his ministry among them, but he also recognized that he may never see them again. He's uncertain as to what his future does hold. In fact, many hugged and kissed him and cried along with him because they weren't sure whether they will be able to see him face to face again. It's during this time, as he's uncertain about his future, he writes this letter to a church in Rome, a church that he's never visited before, a church that he's wanted to visit for some time. Later on, when he's taken to the city of Rome in the book of Acts, we recognize that he's not taken there the way he wanted to be taken. But as he goes, he knows that they know what his gospel is. And the reason is he wrote them. He wrote them his gospel so that they may be introduced to who he is. And from the beginning, there is this internal logic that allows us to understand the gospel he wants to proclaim. Because in chapter 1, in introducing himself as a slave, a servant for the gospel ministry itself, he begins by talking about the theme he wants to introduce them to, which is found in chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This righteousness of God translated here by the ESV, oftentimes translated elsewhere, for instance, when I was growing up in the Christian Reformed Church, which is a Dutch church in many ways, they used to call me Kimsma or Vanderkim, depending on what part of the Netherlands I was from. I grew up with a translation called the NIV, which we jokingly refer to as nearly inspired version before the ESV. In that version, it is translated the righteousness not of God, but from God indicating source. 
This is our uprightness, rightness before God from Him. This is why Luther and others refer to this righteousness given to us as alien righteousness. Righteousness that we cannot build up on our own, but given to us through Christ Jesus our Lord. The reason for the necessity of this righteousness, he describes for us in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way up to chapter 3, verse 20. Because everyone is unrighteous. Not even one is righteous, he declares. Starting with the Jews and then going to the Gentiles and universally pointing out the sinfulness of men and women, he simply says that there is no one who has and who is able to live up to the righteous standards of God. You and I, even on our best day, cannot do so. You've seen our kids and our babies as well. Even in a young age, there is this kind of self-focused determination that rebels against God. My son plays soccer, and when he was about three and a half, he started his soccer career, which will probably end next year. Uh, But he was quite good when he was younger, especially. And I remember one of the games, he came out of the game, and he scored two two goals, and he was very happy as a a three-and-a-half-year-old. And he turned to me and said, Daddy, I awesome. (laughs) And he said, those guys... No good. (laughs) It's amazing how self-focused is. All I was thinking at that point in time was, I just wish he can speak in complete sentences. (laughs) Is the only thing that I was actually thinking at that point in time. Self-focused nature is funny on a a three-and-a-half-year-old, and we're willing to tolerate it. For a 40-year-old, not so much. And what Romans points out is that there is an incredible self-focused focus in what we do that we exchange us for god that instead of god the creator being exalted and acknowledged as one we stand at the center of our lives and we rebel against god and therefore there is a universal unrighteousness that all have fallen short of the glory of god is what romans declared but if that's where the story came to an end you and i will be depressed people because that would be our perpetual condition. But God did, did not see it fit that his creation remain in that state. That he had a plan. He had a way to reverse our sinfulness, but he knew that we could not do it. We ourselves cannot awaken ourselves from death. For in sin we have died, and like Lazarus, we cannot say, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can bring myself to life, is not what Lazarus said. We are dead. Only the voice of God can save. And here the voice of God came in the form and the person of Jesus Christ our Lord. Here the righteousness of God has appeared according to chapter 3, verse 21. And from chapter 3, verse 21 to chapter 4, verse 25, here Paul declares that we ourselves are deep in sin and are unable to save ourselves. But God has sent us a solution in Christ Jesus our Lord, whose death and resurrection and our faith in that death and resurrection, the person of Jesus Christ, justifies us. That means that as we stand before God, he no longer sees us as sinners condemned to eternal death, 
but He sees us through the blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, we stand before Him righteous, not because we are righteous, but because we are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul has been arguing thus far in the first four chapters. That we are justified by faith alone because of Jesus Christ as a result of God's grace for us. This is what you and I, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, believe. And this is what Romans teaches. This is why chapter 5 begins with these words when he simply says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, everything pivots off of those eight words, four words in Greek, that he begins in chapter 5. Therefore, whenever therefore is there, you have to ask, what is the therefore therefore, right? That is, what is it concluding? Because what he's doing is, having talked a lot about various issues, he's coming to his conclusion point. He wants to make a punctuated point at the end in talking about the result of the discussions thus far. If what he's discussed was our sinfulness... And if what he has discussed is our salvation that has come to us by his grace, received by faith. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that is to say, how then does our salvation in Christ Jesus affect us? Affect us. Here, brothers and sisters, we begin here because we recognize that speaking of what we ought to do, as sanctification often talks about, cannot begin apart from who we are. That is to say, Paul always reasons from our identity to an imperative. Another way to put that is, always there is an indicative of where we are and what we are that determines what we do. And here is our indicative. This is the story in which you and I actually belong. Our indicative is that you and I, though in sin, because of God's grace, by faith we cling on for our lives to Jesus Christ our Lord, whose merits cover us, and therefore it justifies our sins before God, forgives us of our sins, and clothes us us with righteousness before God. Therefore, if this is true of you and I, how does it affect us? This is where we begin. In chapter 5, it tells us in verses 1 through 5, there are several things that result from our justification that we receive by faith. And I realize this is a flyby, isn't it? It's more of a helicopter view than it is a road trip that we take along the sideways. But I hope that you get the gist and the sense of where Paul is going with his statements. And when he says that there are three immediate effects... To our justification. First, according to verse 1, one of the effects of justification is that we have peace with God. We have peace with God. What does he mean by peace? Often, we assume that peace is primarily a subjective feeling. That is, an it is well with my soul sense of personal well-being. Things are quiet. Kids are down. All the bills are paid up for this month and we feel like we can relax, perhaps watching a TV show kind of subjective feeling of peace. My wife, 
when we, she had our first child, her daily routine involved going to Target at night after the baby's asleep and walking down the aisle, purchasing nothing but enjoying everything that she had. Because it wasn't really about buying anything. It was simply being out was the joy that she had. Is this what Paul has in mind? This is newborn mom, peace and target sensibility that he has in mind? Certainly, Paul does speak of this subjective inner peace, often referring to it as peace from God, as he does so in Philippians 4.7. We indeed receive peace from God where we are able to sing with gusto and emotion, it is well with my soul. But that's not what he has in mind in this verse. Because what Paul speaks of is peace with God. Peace with God. The difference is that what he has in mind is a changed status. Because of our uh, sinfulness, God's wrath was known to us. Our end was condemnation. But now because of Jesus Christ, we have a new status before God. No longer enemies, as chapter 5, verse 10 indicates, who rebelled against God and who deserved his wrath, but we are now reconciled to God and even favored by God. So it's not simply that we have peace in our heart, a subjective feeling but that we have a new status with God that no longer enemies and in enmity, but now we have been reconciled and received where we have peace with God. But it's not only that we have peace with God, we also have, according to verse 2, access to God by faith. Like a child having access into his father's study without hindrance or fear because he is accepted and she is loved, we now have unfettered access into the very presence of God. This is the right that we have. The door was closed before. The veil was closed. But when Jesus Christ died on that cross, it ripped from top to bottom. We who had no access before now have unfettered access into the inner sanctum. We are able to call Him Abba, Father. We are able to stand before Him without fear and without condemnation. No longer is He our judge, but that He is intimately referred to as our Father. This is what we now possess as a result of our justified status. That because of Jesus Christ, we always have access to the Creator of heavens and the earth. As Isaiah declares, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the Creator of heavens and the earth. We have access to that Creator of heavens and the earth. We approach Him without fear. Because we now have been justified because of Jesus Christ. But the third privilege that we have is the very fact that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only do we have a newfound peace with God in our status, now we, not only do we have access to God by faith, here we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The word rejoice here is perhaps better translated boast. For those of you who own a translation called the ESV, you might note that there is a footnote there. 
And the footnote on the bottom tells you that it could also be translated boast. Because the word behind the English text actually has that meaning of boast. That is, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. I think that translation is actually much more to what Paul is wanting to say. There's a lot of things about boasting in Romans, have you noticed? Because even in chapter 3, he talks about the fact that those of us, you and I, who have been justified by faith, where we contributed nothing to our salvation except for our sins, placed upon the able shoulders of Jesus Christ, he says, where is boasting? Where is arrogance? When you and I have done nothing to deserve this, How can we come before God and say as if we deserve this? A popular saying in our day and age in some ways. And Paul basically points out there is no boasting apart from God. We boast in Christ Jesus alone. And as he talks about this boasting, he says we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only do we have a new status... Not only do we have new unfettered access into the presence of God, it also means that we have hope and purpose in life. It means that we have confidence in our future. We're going to talk more about our future and our confidence tomorrow when we get into chapter 8. Because many of the themes that are seen here in chapter 5 get picked up in chapter 7 and 8 as he continues to develop it. God who declared us righteous in Christ Jesus will not and cannot change his mind, giving us assurance that our standing before God and the promised glory are certain and definite. Moreover, the future hope of the glory of God gives us confidence and joy in the present. We are able to rejoice in the midst of suffering as Paul says in Colossians 1.24, because we know that God is in charge of all things. Even in the sufferings produce good in us, as he points out in chapter 5, and that he will make all things right and whole one day. He is in charge. And because we know that he will make things right, we stand before God confident. Confident, not because we're faithful, but because he's faithful. Not because we remember everything, because he never forgets. Not because we hold on to everything, but he never forsakes. God is faithful to us and trustworthy. Therefore, we boast. We boast in the hope of glory. That glory is within our reach because of Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, he says, we have peace, we have access, as well as we have boasting of the hope of the future glory of God. Now, what makes this personal for us and what makes this possible is what he explains to us in verses 6 through 11. The reason this is possible and the reason this is true of you and I is because God has demonstrated it. Because it's one thing for us to talk about in theory that this is true. It's another for us to know that this is mine. This is yours. You know, all children are beautiful and they're incredible, right? But there is no children like mine. Mine is the smartest. They're the best looking. And they're the fastest. I believe it and I'm sure it's true. It's because they're mine. And here, what Scripture points out is that this is not just mere theory for us, 
The reason this is true is because God has demonstrated His love for us in His Son. Friends, I think it's true that we often project our shortcomings upon God. Is that not true? That we see Him as our human Father. We see Him with our shortcomings and sinfulness and say, God cannot or God does not or God is this way. But oftentimes, we place our God in a box in some way. One particular way we do this is oftentimes when we think about his love. And his love gets fuller explanation later on as well. But even here, he demonstrates his love. But in that, oftentimes, we cannot begin to fathom what that love looks like. Because for many of us, the way we love one another is we love one another conditionally. You scratch my back, I scratch your back. Our love changes. That is, what we love today changes tomorrow. I love my banana, we might say one day, and you hate it a week later in terms of how we feel about some of those things. Here, whether consciously or unconsciously, our love is also very much selfish. We calculate and we desire things that benefit me. How does this love affect me? But that's not God's love. God's love demonstrated for us in verse 6, 6 through 9 is incredibly different than what we imagine. Paul shows how different and perhaps even shocking the love of God is because we know that the object of his love was undeserving. By the way, that's you and I, right? We know his love is different because God loved despite knowing who we really are. Paul describes the human condition, our condition, this way. Verse 6 says, weak, ungodly. Verse 8 says, sinners. Verse 10 says, enemies. These are not the traits of people I desire to befriend, let alone love. Yet despite knowing who we really are, even more than perhaps our spouses, God loved us anyway. The object of God's love display his incredibly different kind of love than the way we often project love. His love is different also, not only because of the object, but when they were loved. His love is different because God loved us when we were still unlovable. It's not because when we changed. It's not because when we're striving to be better. It's not because we changed our look or the way we acted or the way we speak. No, Paul makes very clear. Uh, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Still, he said, weak in verse 6. Still, sinners, verse 8. This is not when we were chasing after God, God loved us. It's when we were rejecting him and running away from God, God still and yet loved us. It's not something you and I do naturally. Love is not natural. Let's be honest. Love is only natural because God makes it so. Because for us, who are inwardly driven and selfish in terms of our determination and priorities, loving others this way is next to impossible. Even mother's love, which is probably the most proximate of the love that God speaks of, has its own limitations. Why? Because we're human beings. We're metaphysically limited, and you and I are sinners. 
We are inwardly driven in our love, but not God. While we were yet sinners, while we were still weak, God demonstrated his love for us. But what makes it even incredible is not only when and the object of this love, according to Paul, but the cost of this love. Not only is he loving the unlovable, not only is he loving them when they're still unlovable, he sacrifices everything in order to love. This is what's amazing about Paul's description of God's love for us in Christ Jesus. And this is part of the reason why it's a demonstration of his love. It's sacrificial in that his love is different because his love came at a cost unconscionable to us. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 8.32 says in Romans. And later on, you come to see tomorrow morning, he is saying that because he said, why will he not give you all things? You know why he says that, right? What makes that question possible is because of what he said, the costliness of his gift. Here, like a two-year-old child where they complain about a gift or a toy they didn't receive when we provide a roof over her head, food every meal, uh, the best things we can provide, yet the child still complains about what she or he doesn't have. That's us to God. That oftentimes we forget the cost that our God had to endure as he turned his face away when Jesus cried out upon the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, and the Father turned his face away in order that you and I might have life. Here, this is why he gave his son up. Involves death, according to Paul in Romans. 5, 6 says, Christ died. 5, 6 says again, Christ died. 5, 9 says, His blood was shed. In loving us, He went to the limit. What else could He have done? This is shocking to us because this is unlike our love and the way we love. All this for those like you and I who are sinners, ungodly, and enemies when most people would not give themselves up, according to Paul, even for a righteous person. This is his theologic, isn't it? Right? Here, because of Jesus Christ, we stand before God righteous because Jesus' blood cleanses away our sins. He then clothes us with his righteousness. Therefore, we have peace, access, as well as the hope of glory. This is made ours because Jesus Christ, in God's demonstration, died for you and I, who are weak, ungodly, enemies, and sinners. And as a result, we enjoy the blessings, blessings that result from justification. This is what you and I believe. This is what Paul is articulating. It's at this point he takes an interesting turn in 5.12, doesn't he? Here, 5.12 begins with another therefore. Remember what we said? If there's a therefore, you have to ask, what is the therefore therefore? 
Here, this time, he's not necessarily concluding in the sense it's not the effect. Verses 1 through 11 focused on the effect of justification. Verses 12 through the end of the chapter focus on the foundation of this justification. That is, he provides ground-level explanation. Because what he now begins to describe is his theological history. That explains the whole Bible in just a few verses. It's an overview of flyby. Have you ever thought that when you read through Paul, oftentimes you wonder whether you're getting the whole thing? That is, there is so much more behind it, but he's not telling you. Uh, Not telling you, not because he wants to withhold it from you, but it's not relevant immediately for that situation. It's kind of like the way we talk to our children. Sometimes they just don't need to know. When they need to go somewhere fun like Disneyland, we don't tell them until we get in the car. The reason is something might change the schedule. It could be rain, which is rare. Uh, It it, it could be that I change my mind. uh, and That's a prerogative as a father, maybe. Or it could be that they have something come up that they need to do, homework per se. Something changes. So we choose not to tell them until the day of. And they know something's up. Because they say, hey, hey, we have to wake up tomorrow morning early. So they know, what are we doing, Dad? Oh, I can't tell you. But we're doing something, we tell them. So they know something's up. But they don't know exactly what's going on. Maybe you might have felt that in your relationship with your children. Or perhaps you still feel it with your parents in some ways in terms of what they tell you or do not tell you. Oftentimes we get the sense that there is this glacier top that we see, but there's far more beneath the water we don't get to see. Because for Paul, whenever he deals with these issues, he deals with them from a big picture coming in. It's kind of like, I, you know, a drive from Escondido where I live to Bakersfield is about four hours. And when you turn on Google Maps and you start driving, as I did this morning around 10 o'clock, it says, you know, I wrote it down, You are on the fastest route, it tells you. Does that make you feel great? It makes me feel great. Somehow I wish all my life had a GPS this way. You know, that that God says, you are on the fastest route. Despite some usual traffic, this is the best route that I can give you. Is the kind of thing or guidance that I wish we had in life. We don't. But theologically, this is Paul's Google Maps. Having expounded this great truth about our justification and the resulting effect and blessings of justifications, he says, let me explain something to you. Because what I'm just explaining to you, which I'm going to now take off to talk about our responsibilities as we see this effect taking place, there's something I need you to understand. In this theo-history of the whole Bible, he says something very simple which is that everyone belongs to one of two atoms. Either the first atom of the garden or the second atom of Jesus Christ. Everyone belongs. Now, we're saying belonging not in the physical sense, but in the representative sense. Because the way God works is through the name of the church covenant. 
Covenant is an arrangement by which God saves His people. And we see covenants developing throughout all of Scripture. In Scripture, we distinguish between covenant made with Adam that we call covenant of works and covenant made with Jesus and His people called the covenant of grace. And both are done by representatives. We see this representation throughout Scripture. Even David and Goliath's story, right? Although oftentimes it's, it's spoken of as primarily about our ability to overcome obstacles in life. That's not really what it's about, is it? It's about the fact that God is faithful and He's faithful in preserving His line. He's faithful in providing a Messiah. But even in that battle that took place, it was with a representative. It is to point out that God works through representation. You and I have... Uh, seen this even in families as well, right? Often a member, often a father in the household representing the family. And there is an obligation and connection to the rest of the body. And what Paul wants to say, when you look at the whole of Scripture, we belong to Adam or we belong to Jesus Christ. This is the picture he wants us to understand that there are those who, apart from Christ, are represented by Adam. In this representation, we have an interesting scene because as he develops this thought, he talks about one man, one man, one man. But what characterizes this particular man of Adam is found in verses 12, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. That is, Adam disobeyed. Sin came into the world through one man, verse 12. One man's trespass, verse 15. One man's sin, verse 16. One man's trespass, verse 17. One man's trespass, verse 18. One man's disobedience, 519. The way parents talk to their children, oftentimes repetition means something important. The Bible is not different. If it's repeated for you, you are to be alerted that this concept is pretty important. That is to say, Adam's characteristic is that he disobeyed. You know the sin that we're referring to, right? We're all going all the way back to Genesis, and this is the way he thinks. He's thinking from Genesis all the way through Revelation because this is one big story for us. My uncle is also a pastor. I, I don't know what that means. It means that in our family, we have no one who earns money, I think is the basic conclusion <laughs> we can draw. But the internship that he uh, sustained was under a pastor who actually wrote a commentary on the whole Bible. As a newbie pastor, one of the questions you always have, and I did as well, how do you choose what passage to preach on next week, right? Um, And uh, part of that oftentimes is because we're choosing topically or otherwise, but we do at our seminary advocate for choosing a book and going through it continuously. Not A lot of reasons for that because then you know what you're going to be preaching next week. Uh, You also can prepare longer periods of time Same thing over and over again. Dig deep as much as possible. It also prevents people accusing you of choosing the passage to speak to them. Uh, That has happened more than just once where people say, 
you chose that passage for me. Isn't that right? And often when that's your wife, that makes it even worse in terms of how those things uh, actually can work out. Now, the reason I mention that is when my uncle approached the senior pastor and asked, how do you choose? His answer was, I lie down on Monday morning and I start with Genesis, go all the way to Revelation. And I start back from Revelation, go all the way back to Genesis, and I usually have an idea as to what I want to preach. This is what happens when someone writes a commentary on the whole Bible. That's my dream. That one day I will know the Bible so well that I will be able to sit and think through the Bible. Hey, may I give you just a practical advice I give to my students as well? One of the best ways to be acquainted with the Bible is to listen to the Bible. Almost all the apps have it now, the ability. So I'm driving up four hours. I listened to Romans twice today. Uh, because I'm going to be teaching on it, I want it to be refreshed in terms of what I read. Many of you I know are on a plan as you read through the Bible. But in the four hours, and I wasn't even listening all four hours, probably about two of those hours, I was listening to the Bible, five, less than five minutes per chapter, listened to it front and back twice. There is really no better gift than this gift that technology provides for us that generations before did not have. There's something different about listening to it, right? When you hear it, especially the narrative parts, it moves you like nothing else. And so just as a side, I realize that this is not necessarily germane to our discussion, but one of the things that might help you is reading it. To be honest, when you go abroad in different countries, and, and for many of us, we travel once a year, twice a year, every year to go to different countries to teach, Currently, there is a seminary in Vietnam that we support, and I go there twi uh, twice a year to teach often. But in doing so, one thing you know about many of these brothers and sisters is that they know their Bible well. You know why? That's all they have. <laughs> you know, they don't have these theological literature they can rely upon. They don't often have access to uh, uh, seminaries. But what they have is the Bible, and they know it frontward and backward. May I encourage you, brothers and sisters, to love the word and to read it? Because what Paul is doing here is he's giving you a history of the whole Bible. Because Adam sinned, as recorded for us in January, in January, Genesis. I don't know where that came from. Since Adam sinned, and since Adam represents us, his sin is regarded as our sins. We use the word imputation to uh, carry that word. It also is translated reckoned or counted. All those words are used to indicate to us that indeed we receive both the pollution and the guilt of Adam's sin and that Adam's sin has been counted to us. You know what the result of Adam's sin is? And this is the logic behind Paul's teaching here in Romans. It results in condemnation. 16, 18, 19. As he says, one trespass brought condemnation. 16. One trespass led to condemnation. By one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Here the word condemnation is exactly the opposite of justification. If justification is that we stand right before God on the merits of Christ Jesus our Lord, 
Condemnation is the opposite, where we are in a court declared guilty and considered unrighteous. So here, when one is not in Christ Jesus, we are in Adam. And because of Adam's sins and guilt and pollution, we too have been counted with that sin. And as a result, the condemnation given to Adam has become ours because he represents us if we're not in Christ. If this condemnation be true, the final result and the eternal destiny is death. This is why this paragraph has so many words like death repeated for us. Death spread to all men. Death reigned. Many died through one man's trespass. Death reigned through the one man, we're told. This is the result of those who are not in Christ Jesus our Lord. May I take a pause here, brothers and sisters, and I realize I'm speaking to the choir here, but perhaps there are some of you who are here who do not know Jesus Christ. Maybe you are inquiring. Maybe you are searching and seeking, and we welcome you here. I am so glad that you're here so that we can discuss these things, but don't make mistake about it. Scripture is very clear. If you're in Adam and not in Christ, the end is condemnation. And the destiny is eternal death. This is not something we say lightly, nor with hearts that are light. It's with heavy heart we let you know that this is the theological logic and history that Paul displays for us. This is not where the story ends, does it? As he says, this justification and the benefit he just spoke of and the demonstration of his love is possible because Jesus is also representing. These two covenant representatives, one in Adam, one in Jesus, here, Jesus' representation is by obedience. As we're told, one act of righteousness, we're told. One man's obedience. Have you ever wondered why the Gospels record many of the actions of Jesus as he follows the law of the land? It's simply because he was born under the law, but he kept it perfectly on our behalf. That for Jesus, this perfection was required because of us. And the righteous and the righteous life he lived has been given and imputed to us. This is why it tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin. Because by His obedience and righteousness, what results for those who are in Christ Jesus is this justification. What he's just been describing, justification and its benefits, are made possible because of Jesus and us being in him. The free gift following many trespasses brought justification 5.16. One act of righteousness leads to justification 5.18. By the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. 5.19. Since Christ represents us, 
those who call upon Jesus as our Lord and Savior, who trusts Him by faith alone. His righteousness is regarded as our righteousness. His righteousness has been counted to us. This was his whole point in chapter 4 of Romans. That for Abraham, his righteousness was not his own doing. Although many of the Jews consider him the father of faith. No, his faith was reckoned to him. Counted to him as righteousness is what we're told. That as 2 Corinthians 5.21 goes to say, not only that for our sake, Christ, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. Those of us who are in Christ Jesus by faith, we are made righteous because of Christ. His perfect righteousness has been given to us. Imputed to us is what it says. This is why as we go through our confessions, for those of you who might have heard of the Westminster Confession of Faith, we are told when asked, what is justification? We are told justification is an act of God's free grace where he pardons all our sins, takes away our sins, and accepts us as righteous in his sight that we have his righteous character in and around us and declared to be righteous only, not because of what we do, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. This is what Jesus' representation does for us. Unlike eternal condemnation and death, For those who are in Christ Jesus, you know what the promised future is? As he said, we boast in the hope of future glory. We're told it's life. It leads to justification and life, 518, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is his GPS overview. For those who are justified by faith in Christ Jesus, We have peace with God, access to the Father, boasting of the hope of glory. The reason for that is because to us was demonstrated the love of God in Christ Jesus who sacrificially died so that you and I might have life. All this was planned long ago because God had this big GPS in mind fulfilled in Christ. Those who belong to Adam has received his sin, condemned before the righteous judge, condemned to eternal uh, uh, life, uh, eternal death. And for those who are in Christ Jesus, our Lord, here we receive eternal life only based upon the life lived and died, resurrected of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is our story. This is the story we declare. To borrow the words of Charles Wesley in his beloved hymn, And Can I Be That I Should Gain? He says, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head. That's what he means, the representation. My living head. And clothed in righteousness divine. Clothed in righteousness divine. 
Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Let's take a 10-minute break. I think you deserve it. And then we'll come back and finish.